Welcome to episode 171 of the Jackson Hole Connection, and welcome to the first episode of 2022. Yeehaw! We're in another year. How about it, everybody? Welcome to everybody. If this is your first time tuning in, and I'm so glad that you're here, the support for this episode comes from the Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling. Do you want to be a better recycler? Well, guess what? There is an app for that, the Recycle Coach app. Now available at the Jackson Hole locals and visitors. Additional support comes from another business of mine, Jackson Hole Marketplace, a little market with a ton to offer. Visit jhmarketplace.com to peruse our intentionally curated gift baskets. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stephen Clark Abrams, your host. It is now 2022. Don't make a resolution, but set some goals so you can have a phenomenal 2022. Get out there and read some books. Go to your public library and borrow some books. Do something to explore and improve your mind. My son says his favorite day of the week is going to the library. And I guarantee you, it is. So my mission with this podcast is to bring you fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. The people sharing their stories are the same people who are our neighbors. We see them walking down the street with their dog, sipping coffee at a coffee shop, eating a bagel at the local bagel store. And my guests today are Janice Allen and Donna Clark, two people connected by relations, which goes back several generations. Janice and Donna's family history goes back to Jackson Hole to the late 1800s. The history they share with us today tells us the reality of life in Jackson Hole before much of the country knew anything about this place. Their history is one of which the original homesteaders share. Hard work, a deep love of the land, and a desire to build a thriving community. Land then is nowhere near what land is worth today. Janice and Donna share with us the reality of raising a family and working hard to work the land, which allowed their family to survive here in this remote part of the country back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I have two guests today, Donna Clark and Janice Allen. And because we have two guests today, we get to hear their history and how they are connected to each other. So I'm here at my office recording live with Janice and recording via Zoom with Donna. And I'd love to hear what the connection is. So let's start off with Janice. What is your connection to Jackson Hole, Janice? My connection to Jackson Hole is my great-grandfather great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, Cy Farron, homesteaded here in the late 1800s. And his son, Merritt Farron, is my grandfather, who was born and raised in Jackson Hole. And my father, Ben Farron, was born and raised in Jackson Hole. So that's my connection to Jackson. And now I live here part-time. Okay. And where did your family move to? Where did your dad move you guys? So when my dad uh, left the University of Wyoming, he moved to Los Angeles and worked for Lockheed for 42 years. Uh-huh. He worked in the skunk works, um, did a lot of top secret work, um, a lot of radio type satellite technology, 
work. Um, I think of Area 51. That was the type mm-hmm. of things he worked on. And then two days after he retired, he moved back to Jackson Hole. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. So you're from LA. Were you born in LA? I was born in uh, Palmdale, Lancaster, which is where the space shuttle was built. Okay. And then now I've lived in Ventura County for the past almost 30 years. Okay. Well, so. side note, I was born, my brother and I were born in Tarzana Get out. County. That's awesome. Yes. That's so. amazing. More connections. Yes. 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 So <laughs> my dad was, had to work in the, you know, the desert for all those years and hated it and couldn't wait to get back. Oh, so, but at the same time, we had this amazing childhood with defense in the eighties and things like that, which was really amazing. How cool. Yeah. That's excellent. And so Donna, what is your connection to Jackson Hole? Well, I share a great grandfather with Janice, my great grandfather, Cy Theron, came there in, like she said, the late 1800s. My grandmother was born there in 1912 and then my dad in 1931. And then I have, uh, uh, all my siblings were born in Jackson. I was born in Jackson and we were all born and raised there, graduated from there, from Jackson High School. And then uh, I came up to Washington to go to the university and never really came home. <laughs> so, visit and- a lot. So you don't live here in Jackson or you do live in Jackson? I don't live in Jackson. I live in uh, Kirkland, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle. Okay. All right. You're in the home of Costco. (laughs) Yeah, Costco uh, is their headquarters are here, but I actually spent a career at Microsoft. Oh, neat. Neat. Well, fascinating. Well, it's it's delightful to have you both uh, distant cousins. And we're, we're meeting in virtual and real world today. So you're, both of you are connected to Cy Farron, yeah. and that's spelled S-I, correct? Short for Josiah. Right. Short for Josiah. Short for Josiah. And he originally came over across Teton Pass, tithing cattle for the Mormon church. His father actually came across the country with Joseph Smith. And um, he went back over the hill and said, we've got to come back here. We've got to, we've got to move there and tried to, you know, brought 14, attempted to bring 14 families over with him, but only four made the pass. But, um, but Donna and I, our grandparents are siblings. So my grandfather um, is Donna's grandmother's brother. Yes. (laughs) And I grew up three blocks from her. From my grandmother. Yeah. And the Gill edition. Yeah. My grandparents built a house in the Gill edition and then Donna lived three blocks away. Oh, fun. Yeah. Her grandmother was also my second grade teacher. Yes. (laughs) Small town, right? (laughs) So I heard you correctly, Janice, that Josiah, who, and he went by the name of Cy, Mm -hmm. his, his father moved out West. As part of the Mormon. As part of the Mormon. From Randolph, New York. Yes. No kidding. Yes. So when he came up tithing cattle over Teton Pass, where was he living at that time? And how Idaho. old was he? At 20. He was 20. He was 25. 20? I think he was, tw- he was he married was, at 20 and he was married he at 20, was, but he was 25 when he came over the hill. From what I understood, he started working as a drover when he got married. So when he was about 20 and the first time he came, he, I think he came to Jackson the first time around, not long after that. Yes, because he's working as a drover, like buying cattle and collecting tithes. But uh, it took a few years from, you know, 1893 or so when he first came. It took another probably four or five years before they, he, he went back trying to get people to come back to Jackson with him, but it took four or five years to accomplish it. By then they had three little kids, <laughs> of course. 
And so Cy and his wife, what was his wife's name? Moved out his, here with three kids. Yeah, his first wife's name, name was Emmeline. And Spell that. E-M-I-L-I-N-E. Okay. And coincidentally, one of the families that did make the journey with them into Jackson was a couple, his, his sister, Josiah's sister and his wife's brother. So the Henningers, um, and they were, they eventually did live among Mormon Row. So they were another one of the early families that were kind of double relatives there. And you know where Mormon Row has Molten Barn. Yeah. yeah. Um, very iconic. And, and didn't that space just go back to the park? Did it? Little, a small piece of it did. A small yes. piece of it. Okay. Let's hear a little bit of Josiah and Emmeline's. Did I pronounce that right? Emmeline? Emmeline. Emmeline. And- Emmeline. Thank you. Let's hear a little bit about their history of coming here in the late 1800s, bringing three kids. Did, <laughs> did all three kids survive, like live to adulthood? Because mm-hmm. it was tough living back then. They did live to adulthood. Curtis, the oldest son, died in World War One. Okay, flu. Um, it took him two months to come back here from France. Huh. So, um, and he's buried up in the cemetery in town. Okay. So, yeah, they they had the three little boys when they moved, and not long after they arrived, the the fifth son was born here in Jackson, uh, or the fourth son, and then the fifth a little bit later, two years later. So yeah, they had five sons together, and then. It, there's a little bit of unclear history about how she died, but she died a little over a year after her fifth son was born, and she's buried down in South Park Cemetery. Okay. And uh, the uh, uh, apparently his sister, side sister, and brother-in-law, and a number of other people who were trying to help him care for these five little boys. And at that time, then our the great grandmother that Janice and I share, Edith. Um, Edith Goldthorpe McAnelli, Goldthorpe McAnelli was um, she came was had was coming over from or came over from Driggs to help care for the little kids and then eventually Cy and Edith married and had nine more kids. Cy so, <laughs> had how many kids total? Fourteen. Fourteen, and all all survived childhood. The first one that that passed that died was their oldest, Curtis, who, like Jenna said, died in. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that 14 kids survived yeah. childhood out here and donna's um grandmother is a twin yes okay. so they have a set of twins and yeah Ooh. that's crazy right it is and when they first moved here where did Cy and emmeline first settle and then where did they end up moving around to first the elk <laughs> refuge they first well they had to it was a land you know grant process you had to get you know, you had to come in and be a settler. He was the first to grow oats and wheat and so forth in the valley. And so they had this small area over by the Elk Refuge. And then he petitioned um, President Roosevelt for additional space. And um, Donna, do you want to tell the story about how he forded the snake? Sure. They also initially had a, another uh, desert claim up Flat Creek that was unsuccessful for the, the one in the Elk Refuge. But then um, in, in the spring of 1907, the story goes that that his friend Ralph Spencer and Cy were working for the Game and Fish, and they were camped up at String Lake, and they received a letter from my our great grandmother that um, the newly the lands were opening up um, that he was interested in on the Buffalo Bench. So he wasn't the only one around that was interested in those lands. There were a lot of people with their eye on them because they had a water source, and so. 
they both headed out to go stake their claim on the land. And the story is that Spencer headed north because there were only two ways across, three ways, I guess, across the river. Then there was the toll bridge at Moran and the, there was the ferry at Moose. But so uh, Spencer headed north and I Farron saddled his horse old buck and forded the river or just forged the river, made a beeline across the potholes. And uh, at the time, they thought he would drown. <laughs> the other guys thought he would drown. But when the, by the time they reached the land, he'd already staked his claim and was cooking dinner. Huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> they had a meal and then got a, you know, and staked their other, the, and some nearby lands and then uh, headed to town and filed their claims. So that was kind of the, the, the story that it's recorded in a number of places as to how they came to claim that land. And then over the next probably 20 years or so, they the family operated and enlarged it. I think Grandma filed, filed a claim as well, an adjacent claim. And then they were able to buy some adjacent land as well so that eventually it was a, a large, one of the, I think may have been the largest in the county at the time. He was and, the largest landowner and the largest taxpayer in Teton County. At the, at the end, the, the ranch was over 3,600 acres. There's a marker now in Grand Teton National Park near Elk Flats. It says he's the cattle baron of Wyoming, and it shows it's a whole description of him. No kidding. Yeah, it's that's really that's fantastic. And this ranch area that you're speaking of, that's up in Buffalo Valley? It's the Elk it's, Ranch. It's the Elk Ranch. It's called the Elk Ranch, and it's in the Buffalo Bench area, and it's just south of, of, the, of Moran Junction on the east side of the, the road. <laughs> And if somebody's driving through the park heading north from town, mm -hmm. what would they drive by that would identify where the elk ranch is or was? There's well, there elk. is that turnout that Janice mentioned, the elk flats. I think it's called elk flats turnout. Um, You're, where right. the is. You're actually on at that point what was their land. It's also another uh, landmark that would give you a good idea just after you've gone north of the turnoff to the Cunningham cabin. It's all that area up there to the east. And it, what it, was Cunningham's were some of their nearest neighbors. Okay. And and I'm interested to know about their house. Do you guys know much what was the house that they were raising all these <laughs> children in like? They had two houses. So they have one they that's still standing in town. <laughs> oh really? Yeah it's on Pearl Avenue. Uh-huh. Pearl Street. <laughs> And it's the yeah, yellow the, Victorian home across from Town Hall. Yeah, that has a cute story as well, because they bought the house in town. As the children were getting older, they wanted them to be able to be in town for the winter so they could attend school. So in 1917, they bought that house on Pearl Avenue. It had been built by Charles Fox, who's kind of a prominent Jackson builder back then, um, had been constructed around 1913. He sold it to Granddad in 1917, but a family named Huff was living in the house. But he didn't inform the Huffs that he'd sold the house. So the Ferrans showed up with all of their belongings. And there was a little bit of an awkward situation where the Huffs had to move out and the Ferrans moved in. And so they had that house. But there was also a, a, a house on the, the homestead up there, along with quite a number of other buildings, some of which are still there. Mm -hmm. um, the house burned was after they had sold the ranch. I, I, I can't remember what my dad told me. I think it's sometime in the like around 1940 that the house burned. Um, I don't know how big it was. Hmm. What, what we see now when you go to the site, there are still some outbuildings, you know, some cabins. Um, there's still a spring house. There's still a root cellar. You know where they are. 
and there is a still a some sheds and a barn and the corral and yep there's a cattle chute and an arena yeah Yeah. it's all still there Mm -hmm. and at the time that Cy had this big piece of property what did you say 36 6300 acres a little little over 36 36 29 and he was raising cattle at this point was he also raising oats and and wheat or did he just transition into cattle not as much but he was also the state game warden for 14 years during that time as well oh and then he had a captive contract with the jackson hole dam to provide all the beef to well they were constructing it and then they also ran the mail they had the contract for the mail between town and moran a lumber mill no, not the the mail. The, the, mail. the mail. That's right. He had the mail contract, which was actually a point of it was a big deal because the two prior people who had that contract died, died. because of the dangerousness of transporting the mail from so, Moran to town. And it wasn't it wasn't oh, danger no. like outlaws or anything. It's danger of the natural environment. The rivers didn't. You know, we didn't have the nice bridges. <laughs> sure. That we have now. <laughs> So it was a lot, a lot more dangerous. But yeah, all of those ranchers in the in the north end of the valley or in on the valley floor, the they all raised, you know, some grain. If you look around the um, Mormon Row in that area through there, there's still, if you go out in the sagebrush, you can find evidence of timothy and you know just different crops that were a little. That's why the buffalo like to hang in those areas where those ranches used to be, is that there's still better food there for them or. And so, yeah, they all grew that, that to some degree. But then I think Janice just also mentioned they did have a sawmill at the ranch as well. So they found a lot of ways to try to supplement, you know, the oldest five kids were boys and they had some built-in ranch hands and, and people to work on a lot of other things. But from what the stories are too, their oldest daughter uh, was a bit of a tomboy and would much rather be out with her mom and dad, or with her dad and her brothers on mm-hmm. her back than in the house helping mom. Is there record of how many people a ranch that size would have employed? I know there's discussion discussion around when it came time to put up hay that it took a 25-man crew. So they, they probably had at least half that all, all the time, or at least the family was around all the time with the, the boys as they got older. Because mm-hmm. let's see, when, when the, they moved up there in 1908, and so... Um, the youngest or the oldest or the oldest of the boys would have been would have been was born in 95 so by the time they were up there he was already a young teenager that's um this is all fascinating i, I love hearing about people's family history and and i appreciate you all sharing this <laughs> and at the time when sai was building this barren empire of being the cattle baron around here, how many other cattle ranchers were there when he first started doing this? Our understanding is he took a petition of 14 other ranchers when it was time to make a bigger decision when the depression hit. So I don't know the total number, but it was, you know, there was neighboring, you know, mm-hmm. Cunningham was next door. There were quite a few others up around them because yeah, Cunningham was the nearest by Bill Kelly. There was a Bill Kelly who's also signed had a meeting in the 20s the 25 is when they started the petition jp cunningham and and great-grandpa Cy. and there's a marker up in the moose visitor center that goes into detail about that as well regarding the Farrens and the cunninghams so 
before we get into what that petition petition is, I do want to hear about that. We're going to take a quick break to have a word from one of our sponsors. And then we're going to talk about what the petition is and what your grandfather's role was in us having Grand Teton National Park. For residents looking to reduce their household waste and become better recyclers, look no further than the Recycle Coach app. Brought to you by Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling. You can access the Recycling Coach app from your desktop computer, mobile device, or through your digital assistance. I think I'm getting close to figuring out what those are. The platform makes it easy for you to get local disposal information for thousands of household items and takes the guesswork out of recycling. Visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle for access. Become a better recycler today and download the Recycle Coach app for free. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Welcome back, Janice and Donna. We are talking about your family history, um, Cy Farron and his wife, Emmeline who came out here and, and settled this area to be cattle ranchers. And he was known as the cattle baron out here. And he and some other ranchers were involved in a petition. What is this petition and, and what was it about? Well, I think there was there were even meetings earlier than the petition that um, are pretty well documented and, and pretty well known if you uh, look at early park history in that during the early 20s, they were already, the, the ranchers in the valley were really struggling. Jackson was always a tough place for agriculture. It's just the altitude makes it, and the, the severity of our winters there make it a challenge. But there were a number of ranchers that had met with Horace Albright, who was the superintendent of Yellowstone at the time, to talk about the chance that possibly the government purchasing ranch lands to protect that land from development and to just buy out those ranchers that couldn't make a living anymore. Um, the you know, people think of the depression starting in 1929, but a lot of things that led up to it, um, particularly around agriculture in the West, were were starting. It was starting to be a real challenge earlier in the 20s. There was a big drought in 1918, um, which caused hay crops to be limited, and the end of World War II had caused the calf, you know, cattle prices to plunge, and so the 20s had been really challenging already. So they were already looking for solutions. They were, they were concerned that while ranching was becoming unprofitable, they really didn't want that natural beauty and Old West character, I guess you could call it, of the valley to, to just appear. And so um, Cy Farron and Pete Cunningham circulated a, a petition that proposed the buyout of the, that, those privately owned ranches up in the north part of the valley. And they were kind of hoping the result would be this museum of the hoof <laughs> sort of you know, I kind of think there's a, a ranch up in Montana, the Grant Coors Ranch, that the Park Service holds. And I think that may have been more what they had in mind, sort of a, a working ranch, but the government, the park owns it. 
And so, yeah, so they were meeting with other ranchers and with the Park Service. How many ranchers signed that petition? 14 was my knowledge. We should probably talk about the Snake River Land Company too, Donna, don't you think? Well, because, yeah, that that was sort of happening simultaneously in the 20s. I think that if there's a great deal of history written about um, Horace Albright and the Rockefellers beginning to talk about uh, purchasing that land and expanding the park. Um, and that's that's a pretty lengthy and in-depth discussion. I think they I, I, I've tried to do a bit more reading and it's sort of funny. I'm not finding exact numbers on a lot of that stuff, like how many ranches actually sold out to the Snake River Land Company. But they the, the Rockefellers set up the Snake River Land Company in order to not let it be widely known. Once they started trying to buy land, they thought if it started to be known that they were buying up land, that the prices would just escalate quickly. So they were trying to, to keep that a bit quiet. And I think that you know, some people felt like they kind of didn't get a, maybe didn't get a fair price because what they wanted was the escalated price. Uh, but it was, it was, uh, there were a lot of hearings over the years. And, uh, but eventually they yeah, the, the Snake River Land Company bought most of those, those ranches. Not all, not everybody sold out to them. There's clearly some remaining ranches up there that didn't sell out. But yeah, eventually the the Snake River Land Company had the the holdings. I think Grandpa's part of it was about, I want to say a little over 10% of the acreage that finally became part of Grand Teton National Park. But uh, yeah, they, he sold out to them in 1928, sold to the land company, and they sold that 3,600 acres for, what is it, Janice, like a hundred, a little under $115,000. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's where where current ancestors you know, or, or descendants kind of struggle sometimes going, wow, if we'd waited to sell the land, it would have, but the fact was that it was, it was becoming with the depression coming, it was, was really challenging to make a living and to make, keep it as a going operation. So. And the park service out of, cut all the yeah. grazing permits like in 1929. So they, he wasn't able to well, graze he, cattle anymore after 1929. So they. Well, he sold at 28. So the, but they were still, um, running or keeping some of the cattle grazing up there but then you're right they did cut those at that point but there were a lot of people that was when most of the folks kind of sold was that 27 28 29 sold. now by selling out when the depression was at its you know peak or it was that, in full yeah, force did that money help them survive the depression it did um to some degree and that they they um Early on, he moved the last of the herd of cattle over to Sugar City, and they bought a feedlot over there. They tried to make a go of that during the Depression and managed for a while. But eventually, you know, like most people, he was working a lot of different jobs to hold things together through the Depression. He worked for Ben Go. Yeah, his brother-in-law was Ben Go, and Ben Go owned with the you know, started the cowboy bar, and he worked as the night watchman there for a while, even as an old man. And I think there's a a funny story that mm-hmm. <laughs> of uh, just you know night watchman and there was a big mirror apparently and he saw himself in the mirror in the night one night and shot the mirror out but um but yeah he ended up working a lot of just odd jobs and and just whatever it took to make it through the depression i think a lot of his kids during that time during the depression that was when a lot of his children left the valley um scattered all over place the place working look just following work and looking for some of them came back, some of them didn't. So my grandpa was the oldest of the second marriage with Edith. So at a very young age, he was the superintendent of the ranch. Very young age, had the checkbook, you know, teenager. Mm-hmm. 
and um, he did stay in the Valley for the rest of his life. And then he worked for about 20 years as the head of the Jackson Grand Teton Lodge Company. Grand Teton Lodge Company. No kidding. Yeah, he was a union carpenter. So they went on to be oversee that whole facility at that time. And then my father, his name Ben, and he was named after Ben Go because my grandparents raised Ben Go's daughter, Pauline. So it was just a lot of um, older families. You know, they were just much smaller community, but a very special time. So your grandfather working for Grand Teton Lodge Company, he helped, he was a carpenter. He was, what did he help build? So he's built several things around Jackson. His name was Merritt Farron. And so the uh, Wart Hotel has the million dollar, uh, you know, the million dollar bar. He uh-huh. built the first one. He okay. reconstructed Meaners Ferry. Um, and then at the Jackson Lodge, he was, uh, most of the lodge was already built. He was there to just do keep it the main lodge and the cabins, Donna. I mean, I don't know as much as I probably should about that, but I just know that that's where he worked for 20 years. I know my dad has told me a number of different times that Merritt said he went to work, that the lodge company was looking for somebody who was really good at working with the knotty pine. The great example of that type of wood is at the Cowboy Bar, all those fabulous logs. Um, They were looking for somebody that was good at that type of carpentry as well. And Merritt said he went up there to work for them for six weeks and stayed 20, over 20 years. (laughs) Uh, And during the depression, he did leave to work for the CCC in Honolulu and Seattle. He had to leave Jackson. There was no work here and left his family for several months at a time. Um, and we have um, actual letters back and forth from my grandparents still to this day that were preserved. And we can read the, the letters back and forth when he was not here. And it was very interesting because they would write letters almost daily. And the history there is just amazing. And we have letters dating back to when he was dating my grandmother, actually. And the interesting story I want to share is that when he was born out on the Elk Ranch, it was called Elk, Wyoming, and it's yeah. United County. And by the time he left here, it was Teton County. It was United County where he was born. Yeah. And then he lived in Elk, and then it became Jackson. And then what was the other county? It became Donna, and then it became Teton County. It was um, iterations. Might have been Sublet at one point. It could have been Sublet County, but he literally is three different counties and he never moved. moved. (laughs) That is, that's fascinating. I I love it. And what ended up happening with, with Cy? So he was a night watchman at the Cowboy Bar. And he, when when he was a, when he was a state game warden, though, he helped poach. He helped uh, convict some elk poachers, Uh went all the way to California for that trial which was neat, but I would say Don, it really changed him when he lost the ranch. It yeah, kind it of a broken, it was difficult. It was hard. I think he, you know, he was one of those people that that was the life he was sort of meant for. And so when he wasn't able to do it, I think he, it was much harder. Those last years of his life were a lot harder. He died in 1944, just before his 71st birthday. So he lived a long life, but, you know, I think he really savored the time he had had at the ranch. He, one of my favorite things that I had ever heard, he just loved the valley and he he loved those mountains. And there was a great quote um, that towards the end of his life that he was, he apparently said that he'd been looking at those mountains for 46 years, but he'd never known a moment and they didn't stir his soul. Hmm. It's like, I think there's a lot of people that grew up there, you know, that feel the same way. Definitely. And it's neat when you go out to the Elk Ranch today, you can go out and you can still see the hand dug 
yeah. um, irrigation ditches and they're still there mm -hmm. today. It's really, I mean, just you think about the work and the just party for oh, yeah. people to do this, you know, and there, there was one other thing I wanted to, there's documented sources that also <laughs> share that he um, helped lay out the town and how the town and the square and other parts of it too. So he was very invested in this community and it was you know, a huge, just a really neat time in history. It, it is a very interesting time of history. And especially out here, it, it was a time when they might've been ranching against each other in some ways, they were competitors, but they needed each other. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those competitors <clears throat> were probably all best friends. They had oh, to be. Sure make it through the winters and so forth um I just uh, I'll tell they a quick story they did it together yeah a quick story about my dad my dad was born here in 1939 when he was born he weighed one pound 12 ounces Ooh, that's tiny they yeah. put him in a shoebox with a lamp and he wasn't allowed to go home until my grandparents had electricity in their home because it was coal fired Ooh. so if you had a baby today that weighed one pound, 12 ounces, you would be concerned the baby wouldn't make it. Yeah. This was in 1939. And there was a nurse named Nurse Lundy who basically never left the hospital to make sure he wouldn't die. Huh. And these are the type of people that made this town. It's mm -hmm. just amazing. You know, you think about things like that. I can tell you anybody over the age of about probably, I don't know, 60 or even their late 50s that has been in jack that lived in jackson back then knows who jesse lundy was her son bobby still lives in the valley um but jesse was jesse was kind of a tough hard you know edged nurse and yet here there are these fabulous stories of her keeping ben alive and just anytime it looked like he was struggling for breath she'd be in tears and uh, it's just a whole soft side of her that those of us who knew her as little kids getting shot from her you'd would never have imagined this soft, sentimental side. <laughs> and when we were originally talking before we started doing the show, you two mentioned the legacy families who helped settle this land. What about the legacy families that helped settle this land would you two want listeners to know about? I think one of the most, you know, it was a... A tough place and the sign, you know, up on Teton passing, Jackson was the last of the old West. I think, you know, the, the movies tried to portray this image of the West as, you know, guns and shooting and outlaws and all this stuff. And that's not how they settled the West. It settled very quickly, but they settled it by cooperation. They had to work together. It was the only way they survived. And, you know, the, the fact that I think the people that came into Jackson, so many of those early settlers, Yes, they were trying to make a living and they were trying to settle it, but they really did not want to see it become some circus. They loved this land and they loved those mountains. And, you know, they loved the, they, they got fed up with the elk that were stealing their hay in the wintertime and the bison and whatever, but they, you know, at the same time, they loved, they loved all that as well. And, and you could see that anytime, I know growing up a few times when I got drugged to, you know, the old timers picnic or whatever with my grandparents you could just tell how much the they all loved one another and they loved the valley i think most of them are probably even those that initially opposed the park enlarging and the rockefeller selling land to the rockefellers i think they would all be really happy to see what the like their legacy has been that land is now part of the park and preserved mm -hmm. that's beautiful and you you mentioned two things that I'm very curious about. 
one is you said that they did not want the town, this community, the valley to become a circus. And the other one that you mentioned was the old timers picnic. So mm-hmm. first I want to talk about Jackson, this valley becoming a circus. Was there risk of that happening? And what is what defines a circus? <laughs> Compared to now, they might say some of what there is a circus. There were starting to be there some developments up in and around the park, up on the the bench up above town, uh, not right 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 above town, but cl- further up in the park. And that you there were you know places where you could have a rodeo up in there. And there was you if you read some of the early history of the valley, I think there was some risk of I think they all could imagine you know more towns or buildings or you know just they wanted it to be left a little bit more natural than I think it was even starting to be in some of the early days they didn't want to see development along those lakes at the base of the mountains Um, you know you look at places that are still quite beautiful like Lake Tahoe but they're completely surrounded by houses and cities and or small cities small towns Um, and I think they really did not want to see that there they wanted to see the lakes left as they are and and not just covered in homes and businesses. So then was there more than just ranchers that sold to the park or to the Snake River Land Company, some of those developers, I guess? Oh, I don't know a lot of the detailed history, but there's been a lot of inholders that have sold out to to have Mm -hmm. sold over the years to the park. And that's still happening, land Mm -hmm. going back to the, I think some of the, the biggest chunks that have happened most recently have been state land that has been purchased and but um there are also i'm sure still in holders that are selling them because there some were a lot of have life estates too yes they're so like triangle x i think some right. of them have life estates uh-huh okay and tell me about this old timers picnic <laughs> and is there still an old timers picnic i don't know since i don't really live there anymore but there used to be a picnic every, just about every summer i think that it was the the old timers and they'd usually have it someplace like String Lake or, um, you know, and it was just a chance for them to get together and sit around and talk. And, you know, it was growing up in a place like anybody growing up. It's like when you get drug places by the grandparents, you're never really that thrilled about it other than anytime going to String Lake was great because you could go swim and play and, and hike up to Lee or whatever. And, but the, you know, you, you didn't pay attention to the legacy and you didn't, it, you would give anything now to be able to go to those same picnics and ask the questions that you want to wonder about now. And, you know, you feel, you wish you'd paid more attention. <laughs> it's true. When I was little, my grandpa used to take me up every day to Jackson drug to see his friends. And you'd just be like, Oh, do we have to do this again. And you'd be bribed because you'd get a soda or something out of it, you know, ice cream, but you go up there every single day, you know, Jackson drug to see his friends. And you didn't pay attention to what they were saying. And it's yeah. such a bummer. It's not, it's, unfortunate. And in a place like Jackson growing up there, there were so many people that like, I knew that my grandparents referred to the goes as relatives, but I had no idea how I was related to them. I didn't know the Meccanellis. It was like, it never, I didn't know my grandmother's maiden, great grandmother's maiden. So I didn't know that's how we were related to them. I just knew there were people they referred to as relatives, but I wasn't sure whether I really was related to or they just called them aunt so-and-so, you know? Mm. And, you know, now I know those relationships. I've done the research to, to know 
how the families are interconnected. And it was just like, wow, wish I'd known this a long time ago <laughs> or paid atten- more attention. And to Donna's point, when our great-grandmother died in the 70s here in Jackson, I think the newspaper said she had 157 living descendants. Whew. That's so then- Donna probably did think she was related to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably 70% of the town. Yeah. And, and that then, was, yeah, that was just one side of the family. Mm-hmm. Donna, <laughs> share about your 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 parents and the business that they had in Jackson too. Well, my my grandmother was one of the kind of the younger kids, but she my grandfather came from over in Idaho. The story was that he had decided he was going to become a cowboy and was gonna ride to Texas and got as far as Jackson and was already out of money. Um and so stopped and ended up working for my great-grandfather at the ranch, uh, married my grandmother. And uh, not too long after they were married, the depression really hit in earnest. They traveled all over to find work, including to Panama, uh, worked down there for a couple of years when my dad was a baby. And then, uh, but eventually at the end of World War II, came back to Jackson and he started Clark's writing. And so they are, there's a lot of roads and bridges and things foundations of houses and whatnot. It was a construction company that was there for a lot of years. And my dad and his brother Lou took over, my dad Lynn and his brother Lou took over the business when my grandfather died in 1969. And uh, they finally closed the build the business sometime. But yeah, they, so they were around the valley, grandparents. I had, my grandmother was a little five foot two redheaded lady that everybody called Shorty. And uh, she would tote 50 pound bags of concrete. <laughs> She was very much involved in the early days. She was a ranch kid. She could she could hold her own. And so Hard work the, was not anything uh, she wasn't familiar with. Not at all. No. And she was uh, she was clever. I remember the the story she told me when they she here she had two kids under two uh, moving to Panama, and she was you know multiple days on trains, and then got a boat down in the the Gulf and. Uh, Every time they the boat would just go along the coast, stopping in all these places. And she said that they, she found out really quickly she had a suitcase that was just for the dirty diaper. And whenever she got to a customs official, she just threw that suitcase up first, and they'd whisk her right on through. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they did. <laughs> yeah, she was clever, but uh, but yeah, they had that. They they were a fairly large employer in the valley for a while there, especially in the summer. And you have planned out several family reunions for your family. And- yeah, and then after my great grandmother died, they the family just sort of didn't seem to get together as much as they used to. I think she was the you know matriarch, and even while my grandmother lived, she sort of became the matriarch, and partly because of Jackson, and partly just because she was such a a great hostess. But the um, they hadn't been together in quite some time. And then there's a cousin down in the Salt Lake area that started using Facebook to just try to find people. And then she for, she started planning a reunion, you know, like probably in 2013, but the reunion didn't happen for two years. Happened in point, the first one was in 2015. And uh, we had about 125 people show up. And uh, we've had one, she is older and she has lung cancer, very slow progressed in lung cancer but there were some older members of the family like Janice's dad and my dad um, that when they wanted talked about when we were going to have the next one one of the younger people said how about in five years and they were all like no how about next year and I was like 
it's a lot of work. How about you're after next? <laughs> so we've had one every other year. Uh, we, we did not have one last summer because of COVID, but we're having it again. Um, we'll have one. So this will be the fourth one since 2015. And there's usually 100 to 125 people. That's a big group of people. That's <laughs> fabulous to think how your family stays in touch to want to keep the history of the family alive. Yeah, it is. It's, Kudos it's, to you guys. Donna, it's Donna's work. She's amazing. She's put together a book on each child and all the activities. So it's Donna for sure. Yeah, the, when we first started trying to plan it, the uh, the cousin you know, had not done a lot of planning. My dad offered to help. And after we sort of spent the a weekend kind of pulling together some like just location of where things people are buried in different cemeteries and it was my dad's idea to, to try to put a family history together, just a little brief book that we had, you know, just a little bound. Um, it's not a real book. It's just a notebook. But uh, he he had these boxes of photographs that belonged to his great grandmother and his mother or my great grandmother and grandmother, his mother and grandmother. And we went through and we had pictures of everyone except the first wife. We had their marriage certificate and a number of other things. We didn't have any photos of her. I got in touch with one of the relatives that's a descendant of the first sons, and they, the, the one cousin, went over to her mother's house and took the marriage photos off the wall, um, huh. these beautiful old photos, and uh, scanned them. So yeah, we have pictures of everybody. And my dad had one of those memories that you envy. That he remembers places and dates and names, and, and he would look at these old photos and say, "Well, that's." You know, he'd just name the people and then he'd look at like a kid in the photo and say, she looks to be six or eight. So that's got to be about this year. Um, and uh, we were able to put kind of a little book, booklet of photos and, and history together. And there's actually a lot of documentation to be found. I think Janice and I have both found that doing family research. There's several books published that have um, information about the Farron family, many other families around here. So Jackson Hole mm -hmm. Historical Society has published books, probably I would say about three or four. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's one little one where my grandfather's the middle child on the on the cover of the book. <laughs> yeah. It's the Burgundy book. I'm trying to think of it. It's over at the museum. So it's yeah, it's, so it's uh, nice that the park has gone to that trouble to do a lot of you know information about these families and other people have too that were local. Mm -hmm. Bern Nelson and some other people have written a lot of Allen. nice books. Marion Allen. Marion Allen. Yeah. And the Allens were another of the found the early families that were a, a nearby uh, neighbor. That it was interesting that I found in the photos going through the photos. I found a picture of my great grandmother with another lady. And then as I started to research, I suddenly realized later I dug that picture back out and went, "Oh, that's these two women had been friends as very young mothers, not you know in the early 1900s, and here they were as old women still." you know being able to spend time together made the old the picture of the two old ladies a lot more special when i realized they'd known each other since they were probably 20 years old oh that does make it special yeah. donna and and janice i want to thank you for joining me today and sharing the impactful family history that you two carry along and the memories that you carry and and now more people can can hear and understand what it took to live here in Jackson in the early settler days, but also what um, what your family history is, and and I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're you're welcome.
if somebody's out there listening and says, you know, my grandmother was friends with your grandfather or your father and wants to connect with you, do either of you want to share an, an email address, a way to connect? So if somebody's out there and mm -hmm. wants to connect and share some stories. Sure. <laughs> I guess. What, what's your email address, Donna? Well, I have one old one of uh, just my name, Donna Clark, and then the number seven at hotmail.com. Okay. Thank you. And mine is Janice L. Allen at hotmail.com. So J-A-N-I-S-L Allen at hotmail.com. You guys are Hotmail users. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Among others. <laughs> some, some of the holdouts. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Donna, enjoy your time in Washington. And Janice, thank you for joining me here in person. And I so appreciate both of your time and the effort and the work that you've put into preserving your family history and doing all the research and also the work that places like the Historical Society and the Jackson Hole Historical Society and the Grand Teton National Park Foundation and associations and have invested in preserving your family history because that is the history of what we call home here and what we're all connected to. So thank oh, yeah. you so much. Thank you. To learn more about Janice and Donna's family, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 171. Thank you everybody for listening. Get out there and share this podcast with people. If you know somebody that should be a guest, send us their name to connect at the JacksonHoleConnection.com. Thank you to my wife, Laura, my boys for your constant support. And of course, Michael Morey does the editing and marketing for this podcast since episode number one. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.